0: Amen, thank you. Good morning and happy Sabbath church family. So good to be able to spend this time with you. Just as a little uh, prelude to this sermon, I I hope that no one will feel like I'm picking on them because I assure you I'm not picking on you any more than I'm picking on myself. Uh, I'm a firm believer that when preachers only preach what they think other people need to hear, we are in sad days indeed. Um, If the Bible has taught me anything, it's that some of the greatest men in the history of this world were fallen men and they needed Jesus and they needed encouragement and they needed love and they needed reminding just as much as everyone else needed it as well. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And then we're going to get into this sermon, The Greatest Temptation. Dear Heavenly Father, we have so much to be thankful for, Lord. If we listed it all out, it would take forever. And when we get to eternity, we will realize even more things that we should have been thankful for. perhaps we weren't aware of down here. You do so much for us, Lord. You work behind the scenes. You work in front of us, behind us, to the side of us. You work in us and through us. I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us understanding, for you are the source of all wisdom. of our lives. We pray this all in the precious name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So let's turn to the book of Genesis chapter three, our scripture reading. And begin from verse number one. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Now I'm not sure, I know I've mentioned this at first service, but I'm not sure if I've mentioned this previously. I don't think i preached on this passage before here, but one thing that really stood out to me when I, I took a class on the Pentateuch in the seminary was that the word order in this first verse is changed up a little bit. In Hebrew, not that we're going to get really technical here, but in Hebrew, the word order for a typical sentence is that the verb goes first, then the subject, then the object. Right, So, how does it go in English? What's a typical sentence look like in English, if you were to write an ordinary? Subject, then verb, then object, right? So you could say, like, the boy threw the ball, right? The boy is the subject. He's the one doing the throwing, which is the action verb, the verb. And and then you have the ball, the object that he's doing. So if you go to Genesis 1.1, we have the prepositional phrase, right, in the beginning. And then we have God created, you have subject, verb and then the object, the heavens and the earth. But in Hebrew, it actually reads created God, the heavens and the earth, right? Verb first, then the subject, then the object. But when you get to chapter three, verse one, the first word is the subject. It's not the verb. You would expect cunning to be at the beginning of the sentence and it's not there. What you have is the serpent. You don't get this quite in translation. It's not that they're translating it wrong. The translation is correct. But imagine reading two whole chapters in the Bible where you have subject, verb, object in English, subject, verb, object, subject, verb, object, and all of a sudden the object is put in front. Wouldn't that kind of pique your attention? Wouldn't that say like, oh, something different is happening here? It doesn't mean that the meaning necessarily is changed, but it lets the reader know Moses didn't have underlining and italics and exclamation points. What he had was, I can change the word order, and I can make the reader think that something different is going on here. This serpent isn't just an ordinary serpent, because if it was an ordinary serpent, then I would have put it as the subject uh, second in the sentence. But that's not what we have here. So already the reader should be attuned to what kind of serpent is this? What is going on here in this garden? And, it's, and he said he spoke to the woman. Another very interesting thing which serpents don't typically do, right? I mean, how many of you have seen snakes in real life? Okay, good. I'm glad. I've seen plenty. Uh, that's good. So I haven't heard any of them speak to me, though, which is... Also another positive. But he, he said here to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat from every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. What does she add there according to the provision we have that God told them not to eat of that tree? But what did she add? Touch it. Okay, now often we will go back to Revelation, and Revelation gives a strong admonition there that no one should add to or take away from God's word. And that there would be a curse pronounced on someone who does that. So it is good for us not to add to or not to take away from God's word. But as I was studying this and as I was uh, reading the spirit of prophecy on what she said took place here, she said that God and the angels actually gave them precautions to take. Things which were not actually sins, but which would make the temptation much easier for them to fall into rather than not. What was one of those things, which isn't mentioned in this passage at all, which Stay together, right? They would be stronger together. Two minds are better than one. We have lots of examples in Scripture. In the multitude of counselors, Proverbs is clear. Several times there is wisdom. So being two rather than separated, was it a sin for them to do something separated? No, absolutely not. And they probably often did. But specifically around that tree, they said, be careful. Don't go alone, like as a precaution. And one of the things she mentioned that they said was, don't even touch the fruit. You won't even be tempted if you don't touch it. Kind of like... Oh, I don't know how much confessing I should do, but Nutella, I, I, it's my Achilles heel or, or something like that. I really like Nutella and I, I remember getting to the age where I thought I need to be living healthier. Not that I was living very unhealthy, but I told my mom, stop buying it because if you buy it, I'll eat it, right? But the precaution is if you don't buy it, I won't be able to eat it. So this is kind of what God was saying don't buy it right don't don't grab it don't touch it don't you know spend too much time dwelling on it and you'll be free the temptation won't even be much of a temptation but sadly we know the case it did not turn out this way then the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die just adds one word one word of distrust to what God has said He adds to it in a different sense. And then verse 5 For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God is withholding something from you. Do not trust him. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, I've seen many uh, preachers, and I don't think it's wrong, who turn to uh, the epistle of 1 John. If you want to, you can make your way there. The epistle of 1 John. And there in chapter 2, 1 John 2, verses 15 through 17, I'll read it. It's a very short passage. But it reads there, uh, the disciple, the apostle John, writes... Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And often the the connection has been made between Eve, you know, seeing that the fruit was pleasant to the eyes, desirable to make one wise, and that it was good for food meets these three criteria. And I have no doubt that it does. But one of the questions I came when I read this was, what tree in the garden didn't fit that description? I mean, we read chapters 1 and 2, and at the end of each creation day, particularly on the sixth day, how does God end the days? Everything was good. Everything was good. And on the sixth day, everything was very good. And then we come into the Sabbath rest that comes in. So everything was good. So there was nothing in and of the tree itself that made the tree bad, right? When, when I read there that she says it was good for food, well, how many other trees were good for food? Did the other trees taste awful? No, they all, they all tasted great. It was pleasant to the eyes. Was all the other fruit ugly? Surely not. It was able to make, um, sorry, did I say uh, pleasant to the eyes? Yeah, and desirable to make one wise. Like, did the other trees look like, man, if I eat from that tree, I'm going to grow dumb? Like, I can't imagine Adam and Eve saying that about any tree that was in the garden. So, basically, Eve gives us a good description, and for sure, it's true that all of Satan's temptations, all of them come through our senses, right? That's the way that he gets to uh, seek to take us away from God. It's either through our sight, through our smell, through what we hear, through what we touch, things which we ought not to be partaking of. And it's true that this temptation came to Eve through her senses, but God created senses for good things. And other trees were beautiful to behold. I think you get my point here, that Eve here gives us a wonderful description of what every single tree in the garden looked like. So why was it wrong to eat from this tree, from the tree which God had said? Simply that he told them not to. For all intensive purposes, it looked like it was okay. It looked just like every other tree, but God said, don't eat of it. If you do, you will surely die. And I want you to imagine for a second here, because I I think of myself in, in today's day. You know, our temptations don't come typically from eating a piece of fruit from a tree that God told us not to eat from. Though there may be foods that we need to avoid, which the Bible clearly gives us principles which aren't healthful for our bodies. But what I want to draw out here is that there are things which also seem to be good or may seem at least not to be sin, which we also need to be setting up precautions so that we don't partake or so that we don't so easily be led astray. You can read there in, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 12. I'm just going to read the first few verses there, probably just the first verse. But he clearly gives us this, uh, this notion of what I'm expressing here. So Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, lay us, let us lay aside every sin. Is that what he says? No, he says, let, let us lay aside every weight and the sin. So a weight is different to a sin. If it was the same thing, why would he say the sin and the sin? So the weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. In other words, the kind of race that we are in is not one where you want a lot of weights, where you want a lot of things that make it easy for you to fall and to stumble. You want to take as many of those things away, even though they may not be sins themselves, so that you trip up and fall over far less than you would if you had those weights. That's what Paul is is trying to say here, and of course he goes many times into the analogy of racism winning, and don't you know that people deny themselves and they train and they do very hard things just to win a perishable crown? How much more so should we then who want to win a crown that will never, never perish? So I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't often ask people to do, but I want you to imagine that you're the devil in the garden. How would you go about tempting Adam and Eve? Of course, you never knew that Eve was the one who was going to come first. It could have been Adam. I want to read you a little bit here so that you get a sense of what this was like for Satan. In the first volume of Spirit and Prophecy, uh, pages 31 and 32. And I'm going to pause as I read here to make a few points that really, really stand out. So she's talking about this uh, Satan, the the time period here that she's describing is the rebellion in heaven had gotten to such a point that Satan and his angels were cast out of heaven. So they had free range on various worlds, but they didn't have a home in heaven. And Adam and Eve were there. The angels had gone. they They had expressed to them the rebellion which took place in heaven and that Satan would have access to them only at the tree which is very important because a lot of people are very quick to blame God to say, why would God create a world that's all great and beautiful and very good, only to create an enemy or a serpent there that's able to have access. to It's like letting your kids say, hey, play in the backyard, but there's a bear in the backyard. And I said, well, your analogy isn't quite true to these people who have mentioned this. I said, it's kind of like saying, There's a bear that's chained in the backyard, and if you just don't go in this one little portion of the backyard, the rest of the backyard is all free. And the bear's only going to be chained there for a short time. There is a difference. God is very loving and caring. He wants us to have the opportunity. He wants free choice because he wants free love. Love can really only be free if it is to be classed as love. So here she writes how Satan, they're without a home. What are they going to do? And she says here, Satan held a consultation with his evil angels. They did not all readily unite to engage in this hazardous and terrible work. And what he was presenting to them was, let's tempt Adam and Eve, let's cause them to sin. And then if God takes them back, he's going to have to take our back. Basically, it's going to create a whole mess. And she writes here that all of the evil angels who joined Satan in his rebellion in heaven didn't just say, hey, great idea, let's do it. But they said, wait, wait, wait wait a second. They did not all readily unite to engage in this hazardous and terrible work. He told them, Satan telling them, that he would not entrust any one of them to accomplish this work, for he thought that he alone had the wisdom sufficient to carry forward so important an enterprise. He wished them to consider the matter while he should leave them and seek retirement to mature his plans. So question, did Satan come upon the temptation unprepared? Was it a very casual thing for him? And he was just like, oh, I'll just hang out here. And when they come, yeah, I'll be ready. No, he's like, how can I think? What if Adam comes? What will I say? How should I go about it? What if Eve comes? What if they both come? Notice that in his temptation, and this is probably the, the major point I want you to get out of the whole sermon. If you forget everything else, please don't forget this point, is that temptation specifically for your life, for my life is never done casually. Satan and his angels prepare. They prepare even while we are sleeping. And, and many times, well, I'll get to that later. Sorry. Don't want to get ahead of myself here. But he, he left them and he went to mature his own plans. He sought to impress upon them that this was their last and only hope, that if they failed here, all prospect of regaining and controlling heaven or really any part of God's creation was hopeless. Satan went alone to mature his plans that would, that would surely secure, most surely secure, the fall of Adam and Eve. He had fears that his purposes might be defeated. He didn't know which way it would go. And again, even if he should be successful in leading Adam and Eve to disobey the commandment of God and thus become transgressors of his law and no good come to himself, his case would not be improved. His guilt would only be increased. He shuddered at the thought of plunging the holy happy pair into the misery and remorse he himself was enduring. He seemed in a state of indecision, at one time firm and determined, then hesitating and wavering. His angels were seeking him, their leader, to acquaint him with their decision. They will unite with Satan and his plans and with him bear the responsibility and share the consequences." Satan cast off his feelings of despair and weakness and as their leader, fortified himself to brave out the matter and do all in his power to defy the authority of God and his son. He acquainted them with his plans. When I read this, I thought, you know, Jesus wants us to be disciples of him, right? But Satan also has a discipling method too. He trains and he teaches those who come after him how they can be workers of iniquity. And notice, he's matured his plans now. He's got them to the point where he can be at least most confident in them, although he cannot be certain. And he acquaints them with his plans. This is what I'm going to do. What do you guys think? Give me feedback. It's interesting to me that as much as Satan wants to rebel against God's kingdom and God's ways, he still finds himself following the same methods which God uses. He's perverting them for sure, but he can't get away from using the same methods that God does. And in the same sense that God uses discipling to change people into his image, Satan wants to use discipling to change people into his image. He cannot escape that as the most effective way. And of course, we have more texts in the Bible. If we go to Matthew chapter 12, let's turn there very quickly in the New Testament. We have an expression of this, I think, a little bit more vividly. Matthew chapter 12, verses 43. Jesus here speaking, a a sort of parable here says, uh, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. When he comes, he finds it empty, swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him how many? Seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. Jesus here gives an analogy. I'm sure there is a lot more that we could talk about here, but notice the expression of when one is cast away, what does the spirit do? Do they say, oh, well, that's too bad. I lost another one. Or do they go and they seek help? from other spirits who are even worse than themselves, and they say, come give me help. I'm starting to lose my grip on this person. How can I tempt them? How can we plan? How can we strategize to make them fall once again? You know there's one story in the Old Testament, or at least one individual, who I feel, although we could go through so many, we find him in the King Saul, the book of First Samuel chapter 13. First Samuel chapter 13. And we find that there are several stories where he does exactly the same thing Adam and Eve did. Blame someone else, try to excuse his actions. And all this because he easily fell into temptation. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, I'm going to start reading from verse 8. It says here, Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel, But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. Now Saul here is gathering the army together to be ready to go against the Philistines. But he sees that some of them are scattering. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered with me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, I mean, can you imagine Samuel's face? Um, Wasn't today the day that I appointed, aren't I here? But you didn't come. Notice his excuse. You didn't come in the days appointed. It's your fault. And the Philistines gathered together at Michmash. Then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord, therefore I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But sadly, this was not the case for Saul. Notice how easy it would have been and was actually for Saul to justify himself. Samuel, you're late. I mean, I guess technically you're not late, but you were too late for me. I saw people leaving. Uh, The Philistines are there. I need to make an entreaty to the Lord. Now, how else could he have justified himself? Why did he have to wait for Samuel to offer the burnt offering? uh, Post-Egypt and when they came out and after the golden calf incident, who did God select as his priests and people? The Levites. Before that, were the Levites the only ones who were able to... Levites, and I should say prophets as well... Prophets and Levites were the ones who God ordained or commissioned, we could say, in the Old Testament after the the exodus from Egypt into the promised land to offer sacrifices. But before that, that wasn't the case. We see many people who gave sacrifices. Adam came. His sons came. Were they Levites? No, they weren't Levites. What about Noah? Did he offer sacrifice? Was he a Levite? Abraham, was he a Levite? Okay, we could say he was a prophet, sure, but he wasn't a Levite. How easy Saul might have justified himself. Well, other people did this. Why can't I do it? Except that God said, I'm changing things. This is the way it's going to be done from now on. God has his reasons. And though he never intended to do it this way, I don't want to get sidetracked here. But God has his reasons. And when God says no, he means what he says. And he says what he means. So here Samuel, Saul sorry, is trying to almost play dumb with with Samuel and it's not the it's not the only time he does so uh kind of like blaming Samuel for coming late in just two chapters later if we go to first Samuel chapter 15 I I can read here uh Let's start from verse 2, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 17 and Deuteronomy 25, give us a little bit more details, how as the children of Israel walked through the wilderness, Amalek came and always attacked towards the rear flanks, where there were those who were poorer, who were sick, and they did this just to get some gain. They wouldn't go against the army proper. God remembered this, and he was very displeased, at those who did this. And he says, Go up. Here it says, Now go, verse 3, and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Pretty vague, right? I mean, you could understand that so many ways. It seems so clear and yet Saul gathered the people. He goes out to do what, what God does. And then we read later in the chapter what happens when, when Samuel shows up. Did he kill King Ahag? No, he didn't. Did he kill all the sheep and the, and the goats? No. But he kept them for sacrifice, right? For a good reason. And when he goes out to greet Samuel, what are the first words from his lips? I have done all that the Lord has commanded. Really? 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 Why, why is it that I hear the bleeding of the sheep? And this is what Samuel tells him. And uh, of course, well, he says, well, I save that for sacrifice. And we hear those famous words that Samuel says in chapter 20, sorry, verse 22, not chapter 22. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Notice how easy again it is for Saul to justify himself, to make it seem, well, this is okay. Everyone else does this. When other kings go to war against other kings, they spare their lives. Why should I have to take King Ahab's life? I'm a king. What if someone comes against me and we lose the battle? I don't want to be known as the one who kills all the kings and then me in turn have my, uh, my life taken from me. All of these so-called, so-called good reasons. You know, it's amazing actually how when I read Saul and when I read other characters who also try to defend themselves or, or make an excuse for their sin. And, and even myself, I have to be honest, and, and everyone here who's honest will say the same, that we've often tried to excuse when we have been at fault. We actually play dumb. We're actually insulting ourselves. We, we think that we can actually understand less than we actually can. Right? I mean, look at the instructions that were given to, to Saul. How clear that was in, chap, in verse 3, chapter 15. Go and destroy everything. I mean, God is clear with the people, with the animals, everything. Destroy everything. And then Saul says, yeah, I've done everything, but I didn't really understand God to mean it that way. Really? How did you understand him when he says, kill everything? It seems like it's simple. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. God isn't, able, you know, isn't asking us to solve very difficult mathematical or scientific problems so that we can honor Him. All He's asking us to do is to understand and to follow. Understand and to follow. And He makes it simple enough that a child can understand. But we often try to excuse our sins, especially our cherished sins. So, what is the greatest temptation? You've heard several expressions here as I've been going along, but I'm going to tell you some. Here it is. Have you ever heard, it's not so bad? God won't mind if I do it once, more. Everyone else is doing it. It doesn't seem that harmful. Perhaps God didn't mean it this way or that way. Maybe I'm misunderstanding something and let me plead ignorance so that I can do what it is I really want to do but I know I probably shouldn't be doing. You know, it's really interesting to me that all Satan wants to do is to get me from here to here. Did you catch that? From here to here. Especially if you're sitting at the back, you're like, what is he doing? He's in the same spot. No, I've actually moved one or two millimeters towards this side. But you can't tell much, right? Because if if Satan's goal is to get me to where the piano is, he can do it in probably, what, 10 steps? But they'll be quite noticeable. And we would be very averse to, like, I'm never doing this. Right? But if he can break up those 10 steps into 10,000 steps, He's more than willing for me to take one millimeter over and say, hey, I'm pretty much in the same position that I was before. I'm the same person today as I was yesterday. All I did was watch this that I shouldn't have, read this that I shouldn't have, listen to this that I shouldn't have, done this, thought about this that I shouldn't have. And I don't want anyone to get me wrong. I'm not trying to preach a legalistic sermon, okay? So this is not void of Christ. Christ is the one we look to and is definitely the one I'm going to be going to. But there is a part that we need to play. Think about about this concept. I think it's fairly well established now uh, that we've read some of these quotes and we've seen through scripture that Satan doesn't come upon temptation casually. He's prepared. Do we prepare to fight temptation? Do we invest time in thinking Okay, this is something that I'm struggling with. Let me pray to Jesus. Let me ask Him. Let me, you know, struggle and wrestle and let me see, Lord, help me to be more careful with my words. Help me to be more careful with what I watch, with what I listen to, with what I read, with whatever it may be that you're going through that you know that the Holy Spirit is there just saying, please, I want you to be happy. Don't do these things. It's different for each and every one of us. But whatever it is, how much thought, how much time are we giving to saying, how can I avoid Falling to this trap again. Or do we just go to that spot or that place or that website or article or book or whatever. And then say, Lord, please deliver me. And then we're disappointed when he doesn't. Because really we're just wanting to use it as an excuse for, I really want to do this thing. This is what I'm trying to, to get at this morning. And Satan is incredibly, incredibly patient. Uh, If you turn to your bulletins, you'll see the quote which I'm about to read to you here, found in Review and Herald, April 18, 1907. But she describes here, the strongest temptation cannot excuse sin. However great the pressure brought to bear upon the soul, transgression is our own act. It is not in the power of earth or hell to compel anyone to do evil. Satan attacks us at our weakest points. Sounds a bit like Amalek in the wilderness, right? He wants to attack at our weakest points, but we need not be overcome. However severe or unexpected the the attack, God has provided help for us, and in his strength we may conquer. In the hour of greatest need, when discouragement overwhelms the soul, I love this part, then it is that Jesus comes very near. I'm going to read that again. In the hour of greatest need, When discouragement overwhelms the soul, it is then that Jesus comes very near. The hour of man's necessity is God's opportunity. God's opportunity for what? God's opportunity to show himself to us, to prove himself of our love. To say, I'm worth following. I'm powerful. I'm mighty to save. I want to show myself to you. Pray to me. Seek me out. Let's work on this together. I'm not leaving you alone. You are not abandoned. The hour of man's necessity is God's opportunity. If you've ever felt discouraged through temptation, or especially when you fall into temptation, then it is that God is near. That's when he wants us to turn to him. Don't use that. The Satan wants to use that, and then he wants to rub it in our face and say, you're so bad, God doesn't want you back. Where in the Bible do you read that? Nowhere. It's a lie straight from the devil, just as much as you will not surely die. There's one more parable that I want to end with and it's found in the Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 14, we have this also very famous parable of the Great Supper. Luke chapter 14. And we also see some excuses here as lame, if I can use that expression as they are, for they surely are, if I've ever heard any lame excuses. So Luke chapter 14 verse 15, now one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things. What things? Jesus had just been talking about when you get invited to a feast, go and take the lowliest place and be asked to move up rather than take the highest place and be asked to move down. So they're hearing these things, and and he says, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant as... Sorry, servant, not serpent... Send his servant at supper time to say to those who are invited, Come, for all things are now ready. You know, whenever you're playing a party, it's nice. There's a little line down there which people say, RSVP by. They give a date and they say, Email or text or call or whatever. It's kind of nice not to have that just put on the fridge and then forgotten but actually call up the person or or RSVP so that they know. Because when you plan a party, you don't want to cook for 50 people if only 20 are going to come. And you don't want to cook for 20 if 50 people are going to come either. It's kind of bad. So he sent them out. He invited them. He got the RSVPs. He's ready and he's planning. And he says, now the food is ready. Go and invite them. Tell them it's ready and tell them to come. It says, but they all with one accord began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground. I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. I mean, how many of you have ever heard that one? I've never heard that one and I don't ever plan on giving it. I mean, hey, I bought a new piece of property. Sorry, I can't come to your party. I have to go and see it like right now. I can't go tomorrow for a party, a place where you eat and drink and laugh together and talk together and visit. I mean, who doesn't like a good party? And another said, I bought uh, five yoke of oxen. That's a new John Deere for us today. (laughs) And I need to go and test them. I ask you to have me excuse. Sorry, I bought a new piece of machinery and I need to see how it works. Make sure that the warranty will still be valid. I can't come to your party. Really? What an excuse. The other one says, I'm married. I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. Really? That's what happens when you get married? You shut yourself up. You can't do anything at all because you're married. That's not true. So the servant came and reported these things to the master and the master of the house being angry for good reason because these excuses aren't really good. No one's saying, anyway, no one's giving a good excuse. Said to his servant, go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind." And the servant said, Master, it is done as you have commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out to them in the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper. The world often, and especially we read there in the very first temptation, which was given to Eve, Satan in the world very much wants to make us feel as though if we do not partake of the things that are in the world, we're missing out, right? God is actually withholding something from you. You really want to eat from this fruit. It's going to be good. You're going to become wiser and smarter and you'll be like God. You want to be up to date on the newest movies and TV shows and and books and articles and whatever it may be, the newest music, the newest this, the newest that, the newest contraption, everything, because if you're not, you're going to be falling behind. You're going to be missing out on some fun. But what I love about this parable is Jesus really puts the kingdom of God in context. It's the people who don't have their eyes on heaven who are truly missing out. This is the feast of all feasts, which Jesus, the true Thanksgiving supper that God is preparing for us, is there. And if we don't make it there, anything that we thought we needed to have here is going to seem like nothing because we've missed out on that prize. And when we get there, it's going to seem like nothing because compared to the prize, it was truly, truly nothing. So I say to you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. I wonder what it would be like if we would just express, you know, a tenth of the effort and time into trying to conquer salvation, conquer temptation as much as Satan puts in trying to tempt us and get us to do the wrong thing, what our lives would be like. With God's help, of course, God is always the one who is going to be before us, behind us, to the side of us, in us, working through us. He is the one to whom all glory is to be given. And when we get there to that great Thanksgiving supper, and when Jesus is the one who serves us at that table and gives us that knowing smile, we'll be able to smile back in thankfulness, saying, we know you led us all the way, and we are here, I am here because of you. That's the story, and that's the testimony we all want to have. Let's not miss out on that great supper. The great temptation is very, very subtle. Satan knows if he asks us to do a leap, we would say, no way. But if we can just inch inches even a little bit more noticeable. If we could just squeeze over a little bit and a little bit more and a little bit more, he knows that years, years later he will get us where he wants us to be. This is the battle that each of us fight and we want to fight it in such a way that we can claim victory. And God wants to give us victory. Never forget that. When you're in discouragement, Jesus is near. And that opportunity that wrestling, that time that your mind is perplexed, that is God's opportunity to show himself, I'm right here and I want to help you. So may this be our prayer.